It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Canada is a major oil and gas producing company, uh, country. We want to make it clear to the Liberals, don't take our support for granted. I just left chamber where Liberals are hugging and having fun. It's the height of hypocrisy. Well, the Greens are like my family. We got this big nothing. This uh, text which could have been written by a college student. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and how Canadian football teams will bring us together because politicians won't. Today, BC is in a climate emergency. What does the government, all governments, need to do to help? And the first week of Parliament just passed, and it doesn't really feel like the reset we were promised. (laughs) Joining me this week to talk about all of this, Lena Manifi, producer and co-founder of Ricochet Media. Welcome back. Good morning. Happy to be back. For the second consecutive show in a row, Caroline Elliott joins us. She's a freelance writer and PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University. Hello. Hello. Happy to be here. And Stuart Thompson returns, editor-in-chief at The Hub. Welcome back. Hey. All right. Let's get into it. Unfortunately, it's taken this crisis in my province to kind of draw that attention that perhaps we haven't done all the work in this area that needs to be done. But it's good to see that people are recognizing we need to have those discussions. That was BC Conservative MP Dan Albus in conversation with me last week. He's the shadow cabinet minister for environment and climate change. His writing of central Okanagan, Similkameen Nicola, took in folks in regions of BC who were displaced by the floods. The province is still reeling and assessing the damage as more storms roll in. On Sunday evening, fresh evacuation orders were given as Highway 1 between Abbotsford and Hope was completely shut down due to flooding. Military, workers and volunteers spent the night once again sandbagging and building barrages to hold back the Sumas River. Schools and universities were shut down. Grandmothers offered to take care of anyone's kids. Farmers took in left-behind animals. Roads are still submerged. Trudeau this past week said that the impacts of climate change have arrived, quote, sooner than expected at the emergency debate held at the House of Commons last Wednesday night. Dan Albus told me that Bill Blair has pledged federal support to British Columbia, but the federal government needs to hear from provinces about what the priorities are. In this panel, we've got two people from B.C. Caroline, let's start with you. What are your main takeaways from the last few weeks of political discourse around B.C.'s climate emergency? Well, one of the big things for me is I think that 
we need to start being a lot more holistic about how we talk about the entire thing. I mean, there were big failures over the last couple of weeks, I think, on the part of the provincial government, particularly uh, in terms of the fact that they didn't issue these same advanced warnings that their neighboring jurisdictions did, like Washington State and Alberta. Uh, The fact that they didn't call a state of emergency, even though all of the highway routes and rail routes into Vancouver from the rest of Canada were cut off, as well as the, the gas pipeline Trans Mountain. Um, they didn't use the alert ready system uh, to notify people of this sort of imminent threat to their lives and their homes. But I think that's one part of it. I think the other part has to be around, you know, not restricting our entire discussion about climate change to carbon taxes and targets and all of us talking about percentages by this date over or under what date. You know what I mean? Like those are important discussions to have for sure. But there's been an entire omission on the adaptation mitigation part, I think. As you said, we've known this is coming for a long time now. In fact, even more specifically around the flooding in Abbotsford and Chilliwack, those dikes and things that failed, those have been on the record for decades as being inadequate. And I think that there's just been a total lack of action because, I mean, maybe government thinks there's not a huge appetite on the part of voters when it doesn't feel as real to them to actually act on these things. But there's no question to me, like, that has to be a huge part of it. And it did appear, uh, to the Liberals' credit, in their throne speech, they talked about an adaptation strategy. And I think it's really important to at least have that on the record, having been said by government somewhere, but I think it needs to start happening a lot more quickly than it has. Lena, you're also in BC. How have the how have the floods changed the political landscape and discussion for you, if at all? I personally think that this is something that Indigenous folks and people who've been marginalized have kind of been looking at and seeing for a long time. So we have a longevity view. We've seen other things happen, of course, like uh, Carolyn said in the States. Of course, the rains uh, after after fire, <laughs> there's no root system and, and the floods and actually a lot of the uh, digging that's been happening for the pipelines have created erosion and have now just allowed the water to, to go down and escape in these areas. So there's all these knowledge systems that we have in Canada that are just deeply knowing about how things work. And we've been looking at other places in the world that's been happening. So I just want to say that, yeah, it's it's um, no surprise after the fires that this happened. One of the things that got me from the British Columbia narrative over the past several months is the same highway that people use to escape the forest fires is the highway that is now flooded by the rains. And if that itself isn't just a terrifying, like, goosebump giving reminder that there's uh, that adaptation should be the central climate policy. I don't know what is. There's bigger things at play here, too, as far as like international. So on Sunday, there is another warning for the Nooksack River to overflow, which is another flood system from Washington that kind of goes down Mount Baker and goes to the lowest point, which is also the Fraser Valley. So that floods every 25 years. So that's now overfilling. And it's a completely different flood that's happening at the same time as Sumas Lake going underneath for the rainfall reasons. So there's emergencies on top of emergencies on top of emergencies. So the way the federal government has, you know, responded is like helping us with the monetarily that you know maybe something that happens over years it's not soon or quick enough people are saying that they want more bodies they want the army to come in they would like people to have um, sort of emergency response and it's not happening these communities are quite scared 
I mean, I'm scared and I'm far away from them, so I can't even imagine what it's like there. I've been glued to Tyler Olson's Twitter feed. He's um, with the Fraser Valley Current, and he's just been providing updates like every 10 minutes, and I just can't stop help myself but keep refreshing to learn what is happening. But I want to talk about solutions, because this is what the backbench is good at. We try and think beyond the crises and figure out what actually needs to be done. So when I asked Dan Albus what needs to be done in BC in the short term, because obviously this is a crisis that requires a short term, a medium term, and a long term response. Here's what he said. Small communities like Merritt and Princeton and many of these Indigenous communities cannot handle these kinds of crises by themselves. There are too many complex or complicated things that are making it difficult. And uh, that's why you know, they need to receive emergency uh, supports from the province. Now, Stuart, Dan Albus was vague about these complex and complicated things that made government response difficult, but we can put two and two together. What are the complex and complicated factors in BC that are making it difficult for the federal government to respond effectively? I think part of my first reaction to all of this when we were talking about mitigation and prevention and response was how similar it was to how we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of, can we do this? Should we have done this? We had this plan. We didn't follow it. Why did that happen? And there's kind of a buzzword. I mean, it's mainly in maybe conservative circles, but I think it's more of like, you know, everyone's kind of talking about this now in certain policy circles, which is state capacity. The idea is, can we actually do stuff uh, in a way that we consider acceptable? A really good example of that is, you know, infrastructure, public transit infrastructure, things like that. And, you know, I'm in Ottawa. Every day I get a news report about how broken our terrible LRT system is. Like it literally just didn't work for weeks and weeks and weeks. I do wonder and I do worry, are we just losing the ability to actually do things? I'm sorry, I'm going to go super bleak here. I know I was supposed to be like optimistic and <laughs> provide solutions, but I do really wonder that, you know, some of the numbers about how much it costs us to do a line of LRT or a subway or whatever compared to other Western countries, you know, like in Europe, in Madrid or wherever, it's like six times more in Canada. There's no good reason for that. There is a part of me that sees what's happening in BC and says, are we getting hit with climate change? Are we dealing with these extraordinary weather events at the exact moment that our capacity to deal with them is eroding along with the environment? So I think it's something that we should think about as a society in Canada. You know, this is happening. There's similar issues in the U.S. too. It's hard to pin it down as sort of a cultural thing. But once you start to think about this, you start to see it in every aspect of Canadian life. Dan Albus, I think, is one of the smartest guys on the Hill. Um, I would love to hear how he thinks about this, because he's one of those guys who's optimistic and has solutions. But the more I look at it, the more I look at each little thing that went wrong or each little thing we could have done and didn't do is all part of this broader problem. Well, at the top of this conversation, Caroline described it very well. Like We need a holistic approach, and we've seen the impacts be so widespread, right? It's not just infrastructure, it's mental health, it's property damage, it's economic losses, it's rebuilding whole entire communities. So I guess my question for Lena and Caroline, or maybe both of you, like what hinders our building of state capacity to deal with these big issues that we've been seeing for a long time? I'm going to say something that's probably a bit controversial, but I, I say four-year terms. I mean, four-year terms just can't think about what's going to happen in the next five years. So these things happen on a longer cycle, which I was talking about sort of longevity of planning and uh, mitigation. And I just want to say speak for the Indigenous communities as well. There's a lot of these Indigenous communities who are not behind dikes or levees, and they've been asking for 
probably when I started as a journalist to be protected in these areas. And they've never been because infrastructure was never prioritized. So because they don't view them as a a big voting base. It's it, Our systems kind of needs to be set up for longevity. Lena, can you quantify that for us? Like how many years would you say those communities have been asking for protections? Oh, probably since the, the late 90s, probably. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the last time that Chilliwack sort of flooded. I covered it like in the early 2000s, but it's a, it's a cycle, right? But now all of the communities are vulnerable. There are some places that were vulnerable and now others that weren't. And now everybody's in the same situation because of the, ex- the extremity of the, the floods. I mean, I think the biggest thing when it comes to, and it, it takes into account both what Stuart and Lena said, I think, which is the biggest thing for me is leadership. It's looking to the long term despite those four-year terms. It's taking responsibility for what needs to happen, not downloading it onto local government, as is what happened in BC. It's taking action to actually deal with an issue and not taking a bureaucratic approach that says we only use alert-ready systems in the case of a tsunami, but forget it if it's about a wildfire or a flood or some other deadly thing. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I just want to know that there's a threat to my life. I don't care which threat it is. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to me the the lack of leadership that they've taken every single time. Even when I was talking about the holistic thing, the idea that we're still building on steep slopes, that we're building in the bottoms of lakes that have been drained, as is the case in the Sumas Prairie, those kinds of things are kind of crazy to me. And I do think it speaks to sort of a lack of big picture thinking, a lack of taking responsibility, a lack of of doing maybe what voters aren't thinking about, but that you know needs to be done. Those are the kinds of things I think just aren't happening at any level of government. Well, certainly not the federal and provincial anyway. One of the things that has kind of obsessed me lately is this is not a partisan thing. Every party does this now. They focus group every little sliver of their platform. They have... Uh, target writings that they want to go for. The platform is not written with good ideas and policy ideas necessarily. It's written to target, you know, X writing in the GTA, and then we'll go to Quebec. That is not long-term thinking. That is, we're in a minority parliament right now, federally. That's two-year thinking. I think we're seeing that at all levels. There's something interesting to me in sort of the the First Nations idea of thinking seven generations forward and backward. Mm -hmm. That is also something that Edmund Burke said, like the conservative philosopher Edmund Burke, which is that you have to think about the people that came before you, the people that are with you and the people that are yet to come. And that is hard to do politically, but it does take something from outside the political arena, um, maybe pressure. And you mentioned Tyler Olson before. He posted an exchange he had with a communications person in the government in the early days of this. Yeah. He was trying to get an interview with the inspector of Dykes, the very important person, the kind of person who should be speaking to the media, couldn't get the interview. He got talking points and a bullet list. When Tyler went to the U.S., people just pick up their phone. That is not something unique to the NDP government in B.C. That happens to the progressive conservative government, Ontario, the liberal government federally, they all do this. Nobody wants to talk. Nobody wants to take any ownership for anything. It's completely risk averse. And it happens at every level in Canada. There seems to be such a serious lack of engagement with crisis and issues. And, you know, I actually posed this question to Dan Albus. I asked him, like, why are we so hindered when it comes to acting on things like climate change? 
And th- his response was this. Now, part of it is is just how the constitution's caked in, right? So part of the deal of Canada was that provinces, w- the people closest to the problem would have the most input uh, with their resolution. And so many powers are, 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 you know, are provincial for a reason. The federal government needs to work more collaboratively. But I've been hearing that for years. I've been hearing that. I've been a journalist for five years. I think I've heard that every single year, every single month even, on various different crises. So BC is hurting right now. How do we get these politicians, and this might be an impossible question to answer, but how do we get them to move beyond excuses? I, I say going to responsibilities. I mean, the, re- the responsibilities sort of happen before they get uh, into their positions and they should last a lot longer. I think focusing on what legacies are and what you're going to be leaving, I feel like talking to every single level of government is is, is quite crucial. But I, I think that if we kind of focus on responsibilities as opposed to, like Stuart was saying, sort of what the hot topic is and sort of what's being surveyed at this moment, that everybody would do amazing at different at different levels of government. I think there's a target focus issue here. We have people writing for The Hub who say big ideas would really work. And then the political types will say, no, I don't know, like we, we, we have to target these ones to win. But I think what it will take is someone to inspire people with a big message and a big idea. And that may not target your writing in the GTA that you need to win your majority, but it may inspire people to the extent that you win a majority, it lifts all boats. I was going to say something very similar. Politics has become so transactional and so targeted. So if you have certain writings that you need to win in certain areas, it's all about those. And people, I think, are incredibly uninspired. I mean, if you look at our voter turnouts, people aren't excited about politics. Mostly they're cynical. And in some cases, they just ignore it completely and and don't take part in the process. But I want to say to politicians sometimes, like, do you know how much easier your life would be if you spoke from where you actually believe and the principles you stand for, rather than figuring out what each, you know, statement you say is going to mean in a hundred different writings. Dan Albus, in the conclusion of our conversation, he suggested that, you know, to be most effective, we kind of need to reach what he described as the great Canadian compromise. Maybe there should be more emphasis on saying, look, you need to figure these things out together and make it work. And don't come out until you've come up with a plan that addresses everyone's concerns. Now, in my head, there's a difference between collaboration and compromise, because collaboration means genuinely working together and trying to give everyone what they need and and, and meeting it on terms that everyone can agree to. Compromise is slightly more negative, in my opinion, because it means that you're you have to forego some stuff to get action. Which do we need, I guess, to get serious about climate change? Because Canada, and well, BC specifically, has suffered some of the worst impacts in the entire world in 2021. I mean, the compromise to me would be to sort of de-gamify politics at this moment. And and collaboration um, goes along with consensus. I mean, you have to kind of speak for people who are not in the room. And so many times people are not speaking for everybody who goes in the room and um, who are not there and don't have voices reflected. So, I mean, I kind of look at who speaks for Wolf, saying, like, who's not in the room, who whose um, communities are not being represented. Can you always bring everybody's concerns to the table in order to sit down and just get along with things? I, I do think I've been disillusioned by the sort of gamifying of politics for a really long time. And I think that, like, strong leadership always um, looks to 
uh, collaborate and sort of come to some sort of consensus. I sometimes think consensus sounds so nice, but I also think if you're going to be the big, bold politician with the big, engaging ideas, chances are you're not going to get consensus because it's going to be something different and new and and potentially challenging to implement. And, and I think sometimes if you're not causing a little bit of disruption or a little bit of questioning of what you're doing, then you're probably not doing enough. You know, there is a role for the federal government to play that I think all of us agree that they're not playing very well. Some of it, Stuart, you you pointed out earlier, there's a lot of money on the line that they can, you know, invest in adaptation and mitigation starting yesterday, hopefully. But there's also just, uh, you know, the role of negotiator or the role of mediator or whatever role the federal government wants to adopt in actually getting serious about this. They need to pick one up. So what do we want from them moving forward after everything BC has experienced this year? I mean, so the answer is almost always in situations like this money. But the thing about money is you look back on all the things I was talking about with state capacity, where we spend six times more than other countries to do the same thing. There is an interesting question on the compromise versus big ideas that piss people off question. And I think I just I just don't know. Like there, I saw piece in the Globe Mail, um, the Andrew Coyne column arguing for a beefed up carbon tax. And that's one solution that will piss off big sections of the country. And um, maybe enough that a government that does that doesn't get reelected. And then there's another way to go about it, which is, you know, the economist Mark Jackard, who's a you know expert on climate. He worked on the carbon tax in BC. And he came out of that so scarred that he said, we should never do carbon taxes. We should do flexible regulations that happen kind of behind the scenes. The argument that Andrew Coyne was making that is that the carbon tax is more efficient and will save us more money and will you know work along with the market to solve the problem. I tend to lean more towards the Mark Jackard side, which is that um, rather than pissing off half the country, we should um, do things that just work a little bit under the scenes. It's less transparent, but I think we all saw what happened when the carbon tax came in. So wait, are you advocating for the Great Canadian Compromise? <laughs> I'm advocating for evaluating both things soberly and judiciously, and I'm not taking any big sides <laughs> on this. Big dreams, big dreams from Stuart Thompson right here. <laughs> I'm um, showing true courage on the pod today. <laughs> <laughs> Lena, last word to you. What's the role of the federal government here like to help BC today, tomorrow, and in the months and years to come? It's, uh, I guess, maybe threefold. Yes, money, like as Stuart said. I think... There's a lot to be said for what they're putting in through bills and making sure that this stuff gets done uh, rapidly. And then also talking to our neighbors in the South, I think there there has to be some sort of integrated plan with the U.S. and, and climate change doesn't stop at the border. We need to be working with our partners, our neighbors um, in significant ways in order to uh, mitigate what's going to be happening to, to all of us on Turtle Island. So besides that, just like massive amounts of, of support to let them know just morally that people are here for us and are on our side and that uh, people are caring and thinking about what's been happening to families who've gone through COVID, the pandemic, massive fires, lots of towns now completely flooded and might be frozen out of their own homes. It's devastating. I have a point of order, Madam Speaker. What is your point of order, Stuart? Well, I think earlier in the year, I mentioned the Canadian women's soccer team for their glorious Olympic victory. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> uh, I just think it's worth mentioning that the men's team is almost living up to those standards right now. They're top of the group in World Cup qualifying. Woo. They have some tough games left. It's not a lock yet. I will never feel optimistic about this, but we have a legitimate... You know, global superstar in our team, Alfonso Davies. We have Jonathan David, who is on his way to being a global superstar. Um, there were 50,000 people in Edmonton watching this team play on like a friggin' cold Edmonton night. 
So it's great. They're they're keeping pace with the women's team, and I think it's awesome. I'm very, 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 very excited for the men's football team. This is not a point of order, but I will be pitching a live backbench episode from Hamilton when they play against the United States early next year. So Amazing. If the politicians can't bring us together, Canadian football teams will. Alfonso Davies can. Hi, I have a point of order, Madam Speaker. What is your point of order, Lena? My point of order was just to to kind of give hats off to Mary Simon to give for the throne speech and sort of representing LGBTQ and Indigenous communities. And I've never heard that in a Governor General speech before, so I'm excited to talk about that. And my point of order would be like, can we do that every time? Can we uh, please... Uh, make sure that uh, we actually uh, like hit it out of the park uh, and start uh, start the Senate in that way. Not a point of order, but can all future GGs have a requirement to have purple hair? Because I'd be into oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And purple hair. That's a, good, that's a good one. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Caroline? So Canada usually has a national question around the status of Quebec within the Federation. But I think last week that national question might have been replaced by what Canadians should eat for breakfast. I don't know if everyone saw the O'Toole tweet where he put out a picture of like what's supposed to be an average breakfast, I think. And then there's all these like percentage points saying what like the coffee and the bacon and stuff all went up due to inflation. And it kind of started this thing that just like wouldn't stop. And it just kept appearing in my feed. And everyone was talking about like, should he eat less bacon? And like, what about supply management? And it became really out of hand. Did, does anyone else agree that it maybe preoccupied the Canadian imagination more than it should have? Um, I mean, the breakfast looked really good and that might have something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like trying to avoid that. And then I talked to a friend the next day and I was like, you know, I'm just trying to avoid the whole breakfast thing. And she was like, oh, can you believe the breakfast thing? And then we talked about it for like 20 minutes. So it's just one of those things. It's captivating. It's not a point of order, but now I want breakfast. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So the first week in Parliament was a real trip. There was a throne speech with directives on what this Parliament needs to be prioritizing, an emergency debate on BC, which we mentioned in the last segment, a less urgent debate about a hybrid government, but cute baby videos that came along with it. For me, though, what stood out was the 44th Parliament's first Bill of Substance. Bill C-2, an act to provide further support in response to COVID-19, has been lauded as the, quote, last step of the federal support programs. That's not me, that's Finance Minister Christia Freeland's words. Specifically, hard-hit businesses who can demonstrate 40 to 50% losses monthly can get some help on wage and rent subsidies. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce has said this final step program is a good one and proof that the government has been listening to business concerns, while the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses seems to think the revenue loss criteria is actually too high a threshold. Stuart, where are you along the spectrum? Good bill, bad bill? What are we thinking? Yeah, this is like a Rorschach test on where you think we're at in the pandemic, because 
it is a lockdown bill, right? And I feel like I have no choice but to be optimistic now in the face of the pandemic. I, the Omicron stuff, like we know so little right now that I'm just maintaining my sunny demeanor. Ideally, this would be a bill that basically never gets used. This would be funding that just never gets spent. I will never underestimate Doug Ford's ability to think up a reason or Doug Ford's political advisors to think up a reason for a lockdown or to close playgrounds or to do something like that because they think they want to look like they're doing something. But I just can't imagine a place where we'll be where we're locked down so hard that businesses are losing half their revenue or whatever it takes to get there. That's the hopeful perspective. And I think there is a concern about, you know, looking too optimistic because I think this pandemic has made fools of us all at some point in the last like year and a half. The levels of vaccination that we're at right now, it is hard to imagine a scenario in which we need this. So fingers crossed, you don't want to look too optimistic because we can all look silly um, if, if things go awry. But this is one of those bills that you understand the critics, but you just hope that we just don't get there. And businesses at this point, like... We just have to get to a point where we're opening up. I mean, there's so much vaccination. The rates are so high uh, in Ontario and in the cities that we just have to get back to what we were at. Well, it's interesting because the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses wanted this bill to apply to those businesses who had lost 10 percent of revenue so that more could apply. Caroline, do you think that's a more reasonable requirement? It's hard to say exactly. I mean, I think different percentages and revenue losses are going to mean different things to businesses, depending on what line of work they're in, depending on what their margins typically are and those kinds of things. So I think it's going to depend in terms of whether it's enough and whether or not businesses support it or want it to be higher, depending on their line of work. But I do like the fact that it's far more targeted than it was to support the businesses that are more impacted in the sectors that have just been really quite decimated over the past 18 months or so. Tourism, hospitality, all those kinds of things. The other thing I liked was the fact that they're shifting the support for workers to those more directly impacted by the pandemic. And I think when we had the broader definition of eligible people for, for the economic recovery benefits, I don't know about out east, but here in BC, I mean, there's real problems with getting labor right now. Restaurants aren't opening. They're not open for their for seven days a week. Um, hotels don't have their typical services available, be, all because they literally cannot hire workers. There's just not enough people working right now. Even in contractors, people who do gutters and skylights and, you know, just the kinds of things you might do to your home, those uh, people aren't even picking up their phone to new clients because a lot of the time there's just so much demand and not enough labor to fill that demand. So I am really glad to see some of these supports being tailored back because it does feel like if there's that much demand for the labor, then why are we still paying out such huge amounts of support? So targeting it directly to people who are in hard hit sectors who might not be able to just move over uh, into a different industry makes sense to me. Well, it is interesting that this is the first bill out of the 44th Parliament. Um, you know, the throne speech did include how it was priority number one. Lena, do you think it's a good sign that the federal government is starting with COVID recovery in this new session? I think it is a good sign. I think they would like to do something that's sort of collective and that everybody's sort of uh, in the same situation. I know we do have some harder hit provinces uh, because of the, the less uptake like Stuart was talking about, but a lot of rural areas are like that across um, the country who have sort of vaccine hesitancy. I do think there's something that kind of unifies everybody in the same same path and going towards the same goals to kind of come out of this in a sort of sort of a just way. So I think this is a good foot to start on. 
one of the things that's interesting to me about the first week of parliament is, you know, heading into the election, we got a lot of promises about how this will be a major reset for the government. But the throne speech seemed to parrot a lot of the liberal agenda from 2019. You know, things like growing the economy that works for everyone, fighting climate change, moving forward on a path of reconciliation. Lena, what does it say to you that the throne speech was so similar to the liberal platform of past and, and the liberal, you know, agenda since they first got elected in 2015, really? That they are leaning into their strengths and telling Canadians that they'll actually uh, do what they say and they're kind of sticking to the same path that they're doing. I expected this and I knew it was going to sort of reflect what they were sort of touting to their voters uh, during their platform. Caroline, do you think this is a reset or do you think it's much of the same? Well, I think it's a lot of the same, but I also do think there were some indicators there that mark a little bit of a shift. When you see the government in their throne speech talking about managing spending, that certainly has not been a theme for this government over their previous terms. Their recognition of inflation becoming a major issue. I think that they're looking at probably the same polling that was released last week that says Canadians are worried about it and they're noticing the cost of everything going up. I mean, it's a real thing. And and I think that's what O'Toole is capitalizing on. And I think uh, the Liberals have recognized that they need to at least be talking about it, even if they're not going to take... I should be fair. I mean, it's it's an issue affecting countries across the board, really. But I do think economists have warned, and, and I think the warning applies to every country, that more increased spending could exacerbate those inflationary pressures. So I think the government's well aware of that. And I, th- I do think that's a very big shift in the way they've talked about things. That said, they mentioned it, and then they said, you know, we're going to deal with it by making housing more affordable. And the way they're doing that is well, spending, right? The housing accelerator fund for uh, municipalities, for example, it's like, the municipalities don't need funding. They need to like start saying yes to the hundreds of thousands of units that are just waiting in line to be built. Um, and the first-time homebuyer incentive was another policy that they threw into their uh, throne speech. But I do think that that has the potential to really ramp up demand and then push up prices. So it's tricky. It's not an easy issue. But I do think talking about that in relation to uh, inflation and those kinds of things is just a little bit, it sits sort of awkwardly to me because you're talking about more spending, which really just exacerbates inflation. I think that's right. I think the inflation thing is going to make the question of, you know, fiscal policy more relevant. And I think like we all have listened to economists who say that, you know, the current spending is a very small factor in the current inflation issues. Um, We're looking at supply problems and all, all kinds of other things. But if it continues, it does actually create a problem. Yeah. The new rhetoric from Freeland in the last month and a half seems to imply that she's realized this and they're just figuring out a way how to make that uh, work with what they're proposing in their throne speech and their budgets and their platforms. Yeah, maybe this is my youth and my naivety speaking, but I just I wanted more gusto. I just I, I wanted more in the first week of parliament. I wanted it different. I wanted it to be stronger and they didn't deliver. And we've only got three weeks of parliament left before they adjourn for an extended winter break on December 17th. And there is lots to do, including the government's third attempt to ban conversion therapy. So, Lena, based on everything you heard in the throne speech and and what you saw in the first week, your predictions on what this next little while is going to be like in Ottawa. I do think they're waiting to see sort of what happens to um, what they can do with interest rates and sort of inflation. I, I do think they're trying to see like where Canadians are at right now and sort of guess to the next disaster and then try to try to pick the safe route. So I think the sometimes picking safe looks like stasis, but I, I feel like they're trying to assess things out and guess what's going to happen by, by January. So I feel like 
staying as part of the course and staying to their, their platform promises and sort of doing this uh, slow and careful is, is what they uh, are going to be doing. Unlike our neighbors in the South who like uh, absolutely put in like all the pills, change everything, have the, the mechanisms and, and the machinery to kind of like uh, do a complete 180 and switch over. We just, Canada doesn't work that way. And I, I do hear what you're saying and, and think it would be nice that all of a sudden if we changed our whole entire machinery and we could uh, go fast, but I just don't think this is it. Can I put a little uh, horse race into this? I know you don't <laughs> like the horse race, but I am not sure that the Liberal Party knows where it's going from here. Uh, I don't know if Justin Trudeau knows where he's going from here. I don't know if everyone who thinks that they would succeed Justin Trudeau knows where we're going from here. And that affects the ideas that are coming out of there. So I think that we're probably in kind of a holding pattern for the next six months. They'll know before us. Justin Trudeau will know before us, but we'll probably start to see it in how they organize themselves. But you're right. Things are a little like we're in a bit of a holding pattern right now. As always, there is so much going on in Ottawa, so we're going to have another rapid-fire section in which everyone has to answer in 17 words or less. One day we will accomplish this, so maybe it'll be today. <laughs> last Wednesday, November 24th, was the last day for survivors of military sexual misconduct to file a claim in the class actions lawsuit against the Canadian Armed Forces. 18,796 submissions were made. More than 40% of those submissions were from men. Meanwhile, a new chief of defense staff has been confirmed, General Wayne Iyer, who had to step aside because he was being investigated himself for sexual misconduct. Caroline, is this not just a bit icky or do we trust the new minister of defense, Anita Anand, will be able to bring in much needed change despite some of the same players being in the well? It's very icky. And if I wanted to stay under the 17-word limit, maybe I'd leave it at that. Um, but <laughs> it's it's something that I think the government has come under uh, a lot of pressure for. And I think that that is exacerbated by the fact that the prime minister has positioned himself as sort of a feminist prime minister and that he takes these issues really seriously. But the fact that these problems have been able to keep occurring under his leadership in the in the military is problematic for him. At the very least, uh, putting someone else in charge of the file might signal that uh, there's going to be more attention paid to the issue. But uh, where it goes from here is anyone's guess. Wet'suwet'en land defenders have been seeing court orders to stay away from the coastal gasoline worksite and equipment. Slato Molly Wickham, one of the leaders of the movement organizing against coastal gasoline, was ordered to stay 75 meters away while other Wet'suwet'en uh, people were given 10-meter orders. While Coastal Gasling's lawyer said Slato should not be allowed anywhere near the area, Justice Marguerite Church of the Supreme Court of B.C. said such a broad ruling would interfere with the rights of Slato to practice her culture as a Wet'suwet'en woman and felt the 75-meter limitation was an acceptable compromise. Lena, what's your take on these court decisions? Well, there has to be a completely different way that people uh, look at Indigenous rights and title and looking at Indigenous law as priority of the land as opposed to English law and common law as priority of the land. So this is a way bigger <laughs> subject matter. Our people have inherent rights to be in their territories. They've not been ceded and they've not been given up. And Wet'suwet'en and, and Gitsan are some of the people who've been fighting for like hundreds of years for that area and they won't stop. So I'm just beside myself that they even have any jurisdiction to say that she has to stay away from those areas. DRIPA has to be implemented and so the Supreme Court ruling would actually take into consideration UN DRIP uh, which is the rights of uh, Indigenous nations to decide for themselves and also have priority needs for their own traditional territories and areas. 
And finally, Biden's Buy America plan seems to be trickling into Canadian lumber. A new duty was recently imposed on Canada's soft lumber producers and has been raised to 17.9%. Christia Freeland said the Liberals are ready to retaliate. I know this sounds nerdy, but Stuart, what does this signal to you? (laughs) Well, it signals the idea that this will never, ever stop. I was in Alberta in 2010 just in sort of a lumber town there, writing the exact same story. Like literally every president does some kind of buy American thing and it annoys Canadians and then we retaliate or we take it to, you know, trade tribunals. And then five years later, there's a ruling about it. But it's just good politics. Of course he's going to do this. That's why Trump did it. Trump, I think, saw something in these kind of protectionist policies that picked up voters that were there for the taking. And I, I think Biden is a politically savvy guy who is doing something that is harmful to Canada and I think is probably in the grand scheme of things immoral, but probably the next president will do it too. On that note, we'll adjourn. That's the Backbench. We'll see you again in two weeks when Parliament Hill will be in full swing. If you're following along what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching what you'd like to hear us discuss and break down, and what you just don't understand and get confused by. If you want to hear my full conversation with Conservative MP Dan Albus, please subscribe. We're going to release it as bonus content, and we'd love to hear what you thought of that conversation and what further questions you have. Our email is backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter, BackbenchCast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work on the Narwhal. Where can people find you, Lena? At Lena Minifi on all the social medias. Stuart, where are you? I'm at thehub.ca. And Caroline, where are you? I'm on Twitter at North Van Caroline. That's N Van Caroline. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you for listening. See you again in two weeks. Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. And Rita Moreno couldn't land a role of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On a night cold enough to freeze your bones, a prospector searching for a legendary cursed gold mine vanishes without a trace. I'm Crew Williams, the host of Dead Man's Curse. This season, we retrace the steps of fortune seekers looking for a mother load worth billions who never came back. So come join our quest. Search for and follow Dead Man's Cursed Volcanic Gold on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.